Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Politicus. My name is Angela Samos, and I'm here with my most esteemed co-host, Denise Borges. How are you, Denise? I'm doing fantastically well next to the uh, most awesome uh, chairperson <laughs> of any Portuguese-American right. organization in the entire universe, and that includes right. Mars, where we just, you know... Right, we just landed, yeah. 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 It's quite the, quite the honor, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're here, I'm really excited about today's conversation. We're here with Councilman Ricardo Murato from Providence, Rhode Island. Um, East Providence, sorry, uh, I want to make that distinction. And uh, so welcome, Councilman. Great Thank to you. have you here. Thank you. Uh, so we'll start it the way that we start most of our podcasts, which is, you know, you giving us some uh, background about yourself um, uh, and then, you know, how you kind of your career path as well and how you, you know, ended up running for city council. And I know you have a really strong background in law enforcement. And so we'd love to hear about that as well. So we'll just let you, you talk for a couple of minutes and tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, where do you want me to begin? Quite a bit, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, were you born in in East Providence? Is that where you grew up? Nope. Uh, so we were. I was born in the island of St. Michael, Hop the Beach. Uh, one of six siblings. Lost your audio for a second. And and you, uh, uh, we'll pick it up here. So uh, you were born in San Miguel. Um, and when did you immigrate? So we came here in, on uh, exactly uh, November 23rd, 1973, and I remember that because that's my wife's birthday. Uh, well, one of six siblings, typical you know, Portuguese family. Uh, put myself through school, got married in 19, still married. Uh, two children, my, my son is also a police officer, my daughter is a, a registered nurse, uh, soon to be a grandfather of my second grandson. Congratulations. So, uh, thank you. I uh, got involved in law enforcement. Uh, always something I wanted, wanted to do from the age of around 12, 13. Uh, always that ambition to, to, to help. You know, it's that, that cliche to protect and serve. But I was looking at other factors also. I was looking at job security. I was looking at health benefits. Because growing up in, at my household, all you ever heard was you know, Blue Cross and paying for Blue Cross and Blue Cross. And that's all you heard. So I want to make sure that I had a, a, a nice steady job. Uh, I like the aspect of problem solving. I think that's a bit, that was the biggest, you know, attraction for me. I love that problem solving aspect and just challenging myself. And the fact that I was told that I, I couldn't be a cop also motivated, motivated, uh, motivated me like with everything else. 23 years in law enforcement. I did uh, three years in a prison as a correctional officer. I uh, was a hostage negotiator for that prison. I'm currently the high hostage negotiator for uh, the town of Bristol, where I work as a sergeant for 20 years. Uh, city council or uh, politics, something I always wanted to get into. Um, you know, always in the back of my head. Uh, and the, the reason the way I got propelled into politics a little faster than what I anticipated was that uh, a, the councilman that I uh, you know, pretty much beat out used to be one of my inmates when I worked at the prison. So he then became from inmate to councilman and I figured, well, I guess now's the time for me to run. So I ran and you know, took his seat. Um, currently, I'm on a board for the uh, Blackstone Valley uh, Advocacy Center for LGBTQ uh, domestic violence victims, 
I serve on many other boards over the years, and I'm also a state accreditation assessor, amongst other things, but I don't want to bore you with that stuff, so. Right. I'm actually curious, why, what was the reason someone told you that you couldn't be a cop, what, just because it? Well, at the time, I was told that I was too skinny. I proved them wrong because I bought it against some weight after that. That was the easy part. And, you know, just people throughout my life, whether it be running for politics, whether it be, you know, being president, I'm president of my police union. I'm always told, oh, you can't do that. Oh, you need to know this one. Oh, you need to do that. And boy, that's a one thing that people should not do to me because I just, it's just a motivation that to go do when I do so. I think that's a Hobbes the Page thing. I don't know what it is, but my sisters keep telling me that I can't be a plastic surgeon right now. I don't know why. <laughs> That's funny. So, well, you mentioned uh, you being an accreditation manager. I don't know if I got that title correct. Um, so, before the we started recording, we were talking a little bit about that, and that was something that was new to me. And so, I'm going to guess that it's new to a lot of our listeners. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and what that means to if, if your law enforcement agency is accredited? And, sure. So, to be accredited is a, a national accreditation. And there's also uh, state accreditation. Our department has both national and state accreditation. And what it means to be accredited, uh, national and state, you follow the best practices and procedures for the police department. There's 400 plus standards. And yes, a lot of those standards have subsections to them. And the police department has to uh, follow those and prove compliance with each one of those standards. For example, and I used this example before uh, you know, the recording, there's a simple standard that talks about not having locks on interview doors, right? You would think that's something so simple, like what's the big deal if there's a lock or not? Well, one of our local police departments, our, our state capital police, province police, a few years ago, one of the detectives were shot and killed while interviewing a suspect in the police department's interview room. And why? Because there was a lock at the time on that door. They were not accredited at the time. There was a lock at the time, and the other uh, uh, other detectives could not get to him in time. So that suspect ended up shooting, killing him, and jumping out of a second floor window and was later uh, apprehended. But the standard says that you cannot have a lock on an interview door. You must secure your weapon prior to entering that interview uh, room. And a lot of the other standards talk about uh, annual analysis, vehicle pursuit analysis, use of force analysis. And with today's uh, uh, topic, of the bigger topic of conversation, bias-based police analysis, right? And we have to provide these analysis in, to our uh, annually. And then we get uh, reviewed by, by uh, the accreditation team and to make sure they are complying with these uh, uh, standards. And what does that do for a police department that's accredited? Well, on an annual basis, you have to continuously review your policy. Is it up to best practice and standards? Are you training your staff annually as required in bias-based policing? Uh, for departments that are not accredited, they don't have to abide by those standards. And I'm just using a very simple example of many uh, other analysis and 
uh, standards that we have to show compliance with. So that makes us a professional police department in that respect. And do you know if accreditation is, at least state accreditation, is that required for a police department? So it is not required. Um, I mean, yeah, and, and you know, and and I'm so I'm I'm very glad that you're asking this question about accreditation. And I love educating people on what it means to be edu uh, uh, accredited. I'm going to give you two examples. Uh, one example: uh, months ago, uh, two of our state reps jumped on. I don't want to get into all the details of what they put on Facebook, but they literally called said that all cops are bastards. All right. I'm the union president for my police department, and I invited them to come in to one of our staff meetings, right? And they did. And some of the questions that I asked, one of the biggest questions that I asked are, do you, do you know what it means to be accredited? And the answer was no. And now that's scary, right? If you're going to represent that police department, you should at least know what's going on in that police department that services your community. You know, and I asked, I asked a few other questions and they had no answers to. But I, I have reached out many, many times and asked them, please come and sit with me and I will explain and educate you as to what accreditation means. In fact, we had our, our annual value-based police training and uh, I invited members of, the, of Black Lives Matter. I invited them to come in. I, uh, you know, the two state reps. I invited council members, members of the community. I want them to ask questions. I want them to share their stories. And I want them most importantly to see what we do, you know, how we train, what the discussions are. And, and they left with a sense of, wow, that's, we, we had no idea. And my job was accomplished because we educated you know, the people that are uh, policymakers as to what we do as a police department. Now, recently, there's been state statute that's been uh, pr uh, proposed that if you don't meet a certain, or if you're in violation of uh, certain car stops or high percentage of minority stops, like it's, a, it's a long uh, state statute that they're trying to propose. But one of the sentences and paragraphs in there is that if you don't meet that, then you cannot apply for accreditation, state or national. And I tried reaching out to these state uh, uh, lawmakers, state senators that are, are presenting this statute to try to educate them, and, I, and they won't return my phone call. Like, I want to explain what accreditation means. You should right. want that in a right. you know, statute, not take it away. And that comes down to education where they're not educated on what accreditation mm -hmm. means. It's unfortunate. So. I, I want to ask you a question in, in that aspect, uh, and especially because you, um, as, a, as, a, as a police officer, as a sergeant in the police department, as a leader in your police department, also a leader of the union um, that represents you know, your, your, your officers. Um, a couple of different questions. First of all, um, how, from a policeman aspect, from someone who's been in law enforcement, and I was in the city council, so you have, you know, both of uh, uh, of these experiences. 
Um, how is, but asking you from the law enforcement aspect, from a police officer's aspect, how is the the defund the, the the police movement been accepted within police departments? And, and of course, you know, uh, politics aside, um, we know you know what what defunding the police may have been, you know, put out uh, as a an easy line, you know, to uh, in a particular hard instance, and then you know politicians have been walking it back or forward depending, you know, on how they look at it. But from a police officer. The concept of uh, defunding the police, uh, how, do, how do you look at it? Uh, what is your perspective on it? And what's your perspective holistical, uh, holistically in the aspect that, you know, uh, uh, do, do police officers look at it? We understand some of the pros and some of the cons of it. So, and that's not an easy, uh, there's not an easy uh, uh, answer to that Obvi question. Right? Obviously, yeah, yeah. But, I'm, going to, I'm just going to share what I've seen as in law enforcement in the years that I've been in. Uh, you know, instead of talking about defunding, we should be talking about how do we fund more, right? For example, when we talk about training, our police department's a little unique because our contract, and, and there's no other municipality in the state that has this into their collective bargaining, which states, we have to give free every month for four hours of training. And that's great, great for me as an accreditation manager because I can schedule domestic violence trainings, I can schedule bias base, and it's not a burden on the police department to pay that overtime, okay? Now, when you have police departments that have to pay that overtime uh, for the officers to come in off their days off or uh, after hours to do those trainings, we should be talking about how do we fund that? How do we provide more training? Now, I have a unique perspective where as a city council member, I look at the budget because one of our biggest responsibilities as a council member is passing the budget for the city. Sure. Now our budget's 180 plus million dollars. I'm looking at every single line item and finding where I can cut. That's how in depth I go and I take that very serious. I go down as far as why are you asking a thousand dollars for you know supplies, paper supplies? And how can we cut back on that a little bit, right? Every penny counts. So when I'm looking at that, I'm already looking at a very tight budget to begin with. Okay. Where are you going to cut? At least from my experience from looking at you know the East Providence budget. The other issue that we have in uh, determining, oh, you know, we should send counselors to, uh, you know, domestic violence calls. Well, as I mentioned er earlier before the uh, recording, police work, it's not as if we work in a factory. We're not going to work every day and pulling the same lever or handle and getting the same results. When we show up to a call, we can show up to a simple neighbor dispute and the next thing you know, that neighbor dispute is turning into a violent dispute from a verbal argument to now, you know, someone's attacking someone. And that goes the same for domestic violence, which is the one of the most dangerous calls that cops go on. It's, it's a very uh, emotionally charged call to begin with. And even the victim sometimes will turn on the cop, right? So how do we, how does, how does the police department dispatcher make that? determination to say, okay, counselor or cop to this call or that call. 
I, I've actually struggled with thinking, how could that, you know, how could that work? And I, I don't have a solution for that. And that's 23 years of law enforcement speaking. I really don't know how they would do that. So, you know, before, again, we, we had our pre-conversation and you were talking a lot about transparency. Um, you were also talking about, you know, knowing your community that, you know, you speak Portuguese. And so in the early days and even today, you're doing a lot of translation. And so you, you clearly know your community well, mm -hmm. right? Correct. And I think about situations where police officers work in a department that's two cities over from where they live. And so maybe they're not as connected. And it also happens with, with fire departments and things like that. So then I also mentioned training. Um, is some of that training also uh, to help officers, I guess, better connect with the community or get to know the community and not just on procedure? Because it sounds like what also makes you and your um, agency so successful is the fact that you are so well connected to the people in your community and you have these open conversations and dialogues. And so that's my first question. And my second question is gonna be, um, why do you think that your agency has, I, I guess is such a good agency, right? Is it a top-down um, supporting of the accreditation, a, a supporting of the budget and the training and things like that? And how can that model be replicated and, you know, across the country and other uh, agencies? So. Two, two very <laughs> different questions. So I'll take the first one, maybe. Sure, sure. So the first one, so what makes our, um, all right, well, there's different types of police styles, right? Um, there's proactive and reactive. We are a very proactive police department. We don't have a, uh, a specialized community policing unit. We are, the whole department is essentially a community policing type department. What do I mean by that? Well. We have our Portuguese community, for example, in Bristol. We have our Portuguese Susan Cris Feast annual. We have the Holy Ghost annual uh, procession, you know, uh, uh, Muldoons. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And we have religious processions, and all that. We provide escorts. We, uh, we, we're just a community-oriented police department. We do... Uh, this during the COVID, we did a, a birthday drive-bys, for example. You know, someone, you know, because they no one could get together. The police department would do a parade of our police cars that are working, and we would go lights and sirens, you know, by the home of someone's whoever's birthday that was that day. You know, we're just very community oriented. I grew up in the in the city of Providence. City of Providence, they're more of a reactive police department. City of Providence, someone can see a car completely being stripped, stolen, tires taken off of it, doors, everything, and no one will even bother calling the cops. In Bristol, someone steals a flag from the front of your house. That neighbor will chase that person while on the phone with the police department until we, you know, catch them. That's how Bristol is. And what do I mean by that? Well, they stay, the confidence and trust in the police department, they're, uh, they're open to communicating with us. They're not afraid to call us when they need us. Unlike other police departments, the people are afraid to call them. And I think that's, and I think that's years and years of that trust building 
And that's and that's and how do you do that for other communities that don't have that? I really, I honestly, I, I don't know what that answer would be. I, I think I would start with transparency and uh, inviting people into the problem solving uh, solution aspect of whatever their problem is. You know, uh, the second the second question: How do you uh, have police departments that uh, are not accredited become accredited? Well, to be a, an accreditation is it's a commitment. It's a, a, a culture change within the police department because you're going to have those officers that did things one way for so many years, and now you're introducing something else that they have to do. They have to fill out that extra form. They got to add that extra thing in their narrative. You know, I checked the back of my cruiser before and after I transported someone, and uh, you know, and, and and it's also an expensive one too because you have to have someone committed. Now you have to have someone off the road or committed to that accreditation process. It's a never-ending process. So I hope, I hope that answered, the, uh, answered your question. Yeah, for, for me it did. And to your point, it, it's a complicated problem. It's, a, it's not something that can be solved overnight. Um, and I think it also does take, uh, it would take commitment from every officer on the force, right? To, to, to buy in, to have the right mindset and to, you know, be committed to the community. So um, it makes me want to move to Bristol. <laughs> well, we were, we were uh, Family Circle Magazine, I believe it was. We're, we're always, always at the uh, like top safest community, whether it's a state or an island, I believe the country at one point. So, and, and they go by, uh, yeah. we have a university too, uh, Roger Williams uh, Law University in our community. So we have college kids also. We have a lot of people from out of town. We have one of the, uh, the longest continuous 4th of July celebrations. It's right here in Bristol. Uh, we're a community of 24, 25,000 people minus the 5,000 college kids. And during that uh, celebration, we have 50 to 100,000 people that come into town. So it, it, it's, wow. uh, you know, it's a very patriotic town also. Let me ask you a question in the aspect of the Portuguese community. Um, I don't know if Angela wanted to follow up on anything. No, um, which is um, because we are also running out of time. I see. Uh, we, um, if we, if we, you know, circle back to the Portuguese American community, um, to where you're from, and you know your 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 big involvement. Of course, you know as an immigrant coming as a young person, very young, but still an immigrant. Um, one of the issues that we have, uh, and you said that Bristol and, and your area there, you know, there's a strong Portuguese American community, um, of course, in uh, East Providence, province itself, and, and of course, neighboring uh, Massachusetts, uh, Fall River, New Bedford, et cetera. The, um, one of the issues that we have in still in the Azores, and I'm sure that you have family uh, and you still you know, keep in contact, uh, is uh, something that you mentioned a little while ago as far as uh, training the police uh, department, uh, which is domestic uh, violence. Um, it's still, unfortunately, the highest region in all of Portugal, which is a shame, you know, in a lot of ways, but it is, uh, you know, we have some of the highest rates in the Azores still with domestic violence issues. Have, have you seen these issues? Um, and of course, you know, folks bring those wherever they go, you know, whether they come from the Azores or they come from uh, Servio or they come from Guatemala, you bring some of your issues, you know, from uh, into another country. Have you seen um, 
in, in the Portuguese American community, have these been an issue that you've seen, or is it, uh, or have we kind of integrated um, into American mainstream that also has issues with domestic violence? Obviously, you can attest to that as a, as, a, as an officer. But uh, how do you foresee that in the Portuguese American community uh, from your experience? Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad you actually asked that question because that's something that's very, uh, very near and dear to my heart, right? Um, and I didn't want to mention this at the beginning, but part of the, the main reason why I really wanted to get into law enforcement was because of domestic violence. For um, I grew up in a domestic violence home, uh, and I'm not ashamed to say that I actually have PTSD from it. Uh, the things that I, I've seen and what my father had done to my mother. And I wanted to get into law enforcement where, and back then in the, uh, the 70s and 80s, the laws, we have come a long way from, you know, the cops showing up and go take a walk and cool off and come back. And meanwhile, you know, your mom is, you know, bleeding, there's, the house is trashed. We've come a long way from that. And I'm going to get to your answer as to what I've seen from people that have come over uh, since I've been a cop. Uh, I've joined the Blackstone Valley Advocacy Center as a board member for that reason. Uh, I've done policy where it protects our, uh, our, our homes, our safe homes, where the battered women have a place to go. Uh, I've actually gotten an award from one of our local advocacies for coming up with that plan as to how police will respond to those homes. Uh, you know, starting off, I've seen a, a lot of people that have come, you know, right from Portugal and settled in Bristol, and they bring that mentality of, you know, I can still, I can do this to my wife here, and boy, I love to educate them otherwise, you know, and, you know, when I show up to a home and I have the probable cause to make that arrest, to me, I am helping that, uh, typically, it's typically, you know, the, the wife uh, we do arrest some you know, males sometimes, but the predominant violators are the males, right? They're the aggressors. And when we arrest them, uh, they may not know it at that point in time, but I'm actually helping them, okay? Uh, and I'm actually helping him too, because now he's going to get a real good education on American law. Uh, I've gone to Portugal many times to visit. I, I love going back to my island. My father uh, moved back there. He since, you know, passed away a year ago. But I remember uh, going to places and I would see women, I, like I know for a fact that they were abused a day, two or three days prior because they still had the markings. And that just upset the hell out of me, you know. And, and you're right. I, I, I know from cousins that live there, the, the laws there have gotten better. But I think they can get a lot. They, they, they still have a long way to go. Uh, for the island of St. Michael, that's the only one I, I have visited. The laws there have a long way to go in protecting uh, women and, 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 you know, from domestic violence. So. Do, you, do you think that's something that um, because of your connection, you know, to uh, San Miguel and to the Azores and your connection, of course, in law enforcement, do you think that some of these issues that Azorians, as you in your case, you know, and uh, Portuguese in general, but, you know, we're kind of closer to the islands or like, a, you know, the just a you know a couple hours from uh, from Boston. Um, do you, do you think that it's something that um, those uh, folks like such as yourself who have such you know uh, experience in uh, uh, these fields could contribute to the Azores? You think that there could be a little bit more of um, that's something that Palkas, for example, has has proposed in many different levels. You know, uh, which is 
Do you like think an exchange that's, or something? Yeah, the know-how that we have here in the States and you as a Portuguese citizen who speaks the language, you know, because, you know, when you get to second, third, fourth generation, that's a different uh, concept, but, uh, you know, still as an immigrant, of course, and still speaks the language, you think you and others could actually help in the policing there? Although policing is different, we know, you know, uh, San Miguel policing and and and, and uh, uh, in, in the Azores and even in rural Portugal is much different than it is here in a, in a city or a suburb uh, uh, in the United States. But this know-how in areas like domestic violence, wouldn't it be interesting from your perspective? And would you be willing if, if you were invited to you know, uh, do some some training and to, you know, share some of your uh, knowledge with the police forces back there? Uh, I would I would love to do that. Uh, I was president of Amij Hapesh for, uh, you know, a term. Uh, we, we made uh, West Warwick is another huge uh, Portuguese community. Uh, a lot of the uh, Portuguese in, in West Warwick, you know, they're from Hapesh. So we, we got to make West Warwick and Hot Page sister cities. And I was hoping at the time that we would have some type of dialogue and, and, and you know, maybe in that uh, aspect, as far as domestic violence, that, that kind of fizzled out. You have to have the right person in politics on that island that will want to push that conversation. You know, uh, I made friends with a lieutenant from the uh, police department for San Miguel who has attended seminars at our lo local university. We've had, we've had like an exchange where people from other countries, we give them our home for a week. I actually had a cop one time from Georgia, Russia. And him and I didn't speak a word of, we didn't know what, it was a week of just looking at each other. <laughs> but it was, a nice, you know, it was a good experience to have other cops from other, other countries come in and, you know, so my hope, and why am I saying that? Well, I'm, I was, I'm hoping that that will continue after COVID, where they come and they learn our ways and maybe spark something in one of them to go back and maybe start that dialogue there. Very important dialogue. You know, uh, sometimes all it takes is that one person to start that conversation. Uh, would I be willing to go there and uh, educate? Absolutely. Just give me the plane ticket. Tell me when. You know, I love going to the island or, you know, I like to visit other parts, but yeah, it's, it's an important subject and I'm surprised. I mean, they've come a little bit from where they were, but they need to still go a, a little bit more. Have you seen changes in the community itself, in the Portuguese American community? Uh, have you seen changes in generation, you know, like from your father and my father's generation? To the uh, to our generation, to the younger people, you know, in their now in their you know twenties and and uh, and thirties, have you seen a change for the better in issues related to, for example, domestic violence? Well, I've seen. I can speak for myself. I can speak for my brothers. Um, you know what my father did. The buck stopped with him. We uh, we broke that cycle. Uh, it's it, you know the uh, the old saying of the cycle continues. Uh, not at least not with not in my household, not with my brothers. Uh, for the people that have come over, that I I dealt with, right, where they were you know new to the country and they were arrested for domestic violence, I don't remember ever going back to that house and arresting them again. I I think I think the message is clear when you are arrested the first time and you have to go through all of the procedures, legal procedures 
that you have to go through, you know, the no contact orders, the court dates, you violate a no contact order, you're thrown back in jail. I think that's a really good wake up call for someone that comes from a country with little laws to a country that now has laws. So there's still, there's still more work to be done. We had a recent uh, a strangulation law that was passed a few years ago, you know, and that's, and that's still being, you know, worked and tweaked on, but there's still a little bit of more, a little bit more work to do, you know, so. Well, we have uh, reached the end of our time, but um, so many things that I wanted to say to you, Councilman Muratu. So first of all, thank you for your service uh, on, on law enforcement and also on city council. But I, you know, I think law enforcement is one of those sort of thankless jobs that you know you you end up having to deal with uh, the worst of society and, and you don't get thanked enough. Secondly, kudos to you for for taking you know some tragedy in your childhood and turning it into something positive with your career and your service to the community. Um, so admirable. And uh, so you're wonderful for doing that. Indeed. Um, and um, I'm, I, this is probably one of my favorite conversations that we've had on this podcast. We are starting to, Denise and I are saying, we got to start having harder conversations on this podcast. So we're starting to address things, you know, that are a little bit more controversial. And, and uh, we certainly did that here today. And so I thank you for being transparent and willing to have that conversation. Uh, I, think it was, I think it was really great. And I hope that our listeners uh, feel the same way and we'll share this conversation with uh, friends and family and, and uh, you know, encourage more dialogue around these topics. So, um, you know, and that's a, that's a bit of a shout out to everybody to share the podcast and subscribe and write us a review and, and those kinds of things. Um, but um, yes, I, I would just say thank you so much for your time. And um, now that the idea, the plant, the planting of the seed has been put, thanks to Denise about doing a, a, an exchange, it might have to be in 2022, but it's certainly something that will add to the list of projects, I think. I think it's a great idea. And um, um, yeah, I, I think. And I, wanted to, I just wanted to end uh, by, uh, of course, uh, echoing what Tangela said and thanking you um, uh, for, for your work, both in law enforcement and, and of course, at the city council level. And, um, and maybe ask, for, you know, um, there are uh, Portuguese Americans, uh, first, second, third generation, uh, hopefully a lot of younger people listening as well. But podcast is something that's more of a younger person um, uh, audience. Um, what are some of the uh, do's and don'ts that you would uh, uh, give in a uh, roundabout way in a, in a few minutes uh, to those who are uh, with some of them as young as, as you said you were, you know, some of them in, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old that may be listening with their mom or their dad or their grandpa uh, and uh, are thinking about law enforcement, because uh, that is one field that we have some Portuguese Americans, but I feel not enough. Um, and so uh, what is your take on that and what would you tell these young people whether they are just you know teenagers pre-tea or even some who are now in college and are thinking about making a switch and going into law enforcement and law enforcement what are some of the things that you would like to point out and and maybe you know some uh, some pep a little bit of a pep talk as well so yeah i mean uh, in today's day and age uh, i mean when i applied to, to the police department for every position there was at least 200 plus applicants uh, nowadays, you get me. You're lucky to get 30 applicants. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it is a, a difficult time to be a police officer. I mean, the microscope is on us. But at the same time, if you are a uh, problem-solving type individual, 
And yeah, as corny and as a cliche as it may be to help people, uh, I would suggest that at least talk to a local cop first, do a ride along, ask those questions and see if this is something that you want to get into. It, it, it does take that type of, a, a type of a certain mindset. Uh, I mean, we do deal with some difficult things sometimes. I mean, I, I can spend hours here telling you what I've, I have dealt with and what I've seen. But at the end of the day, it's still it's a very re, uh, rewarding job. I love helping our Portuguese community. Uh, my last name, Morado, you know, it sounds Italian, Morado, but in Portuguese is Morato. Um, and I, I grew up in Providence. I, I lived in East Providence since 97, but I work in Bristol. And I'm new, I'm new, I'm working the feast and the Portuguese people uh, talking about me in Portuguese in front of me at the feast and I'm just smiling at them. It took years for them to realize that I'm Portuguese too and I speak fluent Portuguese. But, uh, That's it's the been best. A, yeah, it, it, it's been a, a blast working in Bristol. And, uh, but you know, the other thing I tell people, perseverance, right? Uh, one thing I, did, I left out, I am a realtor also. I flip houses. Uh, I was told, that was another thing I was told, that I can't be a realtor. So I've been a realtor five years and I do pretty well, all word of mouth, you know. And and that, just a side joke, why did I become a cop? Well, I didn't want to be a bricklayer or carry roof up a ladder. So I took the easy way out, you know. But no, but it's a, it's a rewarding job. Anyone that's listening that is thinking about police, uh, I would encourage them to look into it. Like I said, do a ride along with your local police department. Do a citizens police academy, right? A lot of the police departments offer citizens police academies. You know, one night a week type of thing, five weeks. Go out, spend time with them, see what we do. You know, maybe that's you know, you'll get that bug and you know, pursue that career. And it is a career. You know, it's a professional a professional. So. Didn't even know that those existed. The citizens <laughs> police academies. So that's uh, definitely something to consider. Um, well, thank you again. This has been a phenomenal conversation. Really appreciate your time. And I know it's thank past you. your bedtime, so we're, we're going to let you go. But um, thank you again. Uh, thank you, Denise. And thanks to our listeners out there for joining us again. Um, so until next time, have a wonderful night. Take care. Thank you. Bye.